Good morning. It's Sunday, November the 3rd, 2019. This is show number 106. 106. Come on, let's do it. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Gummo, and this is the show that we do and every once in a while, maybe every week now, who knows, but uh, here we are. We're back for another episode, another round, another installment. <laughs> it's coming to you uh, live from Chicago, about a thousand feet above the sidewalks. It's a little bitter downstairs, actually. Where are we? We're uh, we're in the we're we are in the heart of Chicago, on the top of the Aeon Building, the big white building, you know. That. Anyhow, for another week or so, and then it's off to more warmer adventures. Uh, so yeah, a lot of uh, memories and a lot of things going on with that. But uh, ooh, boy, it's been bitter, you know. Here in the United States, uh, this past week we celebrated Halloween. And for those of you who are not uh, familiar with Halloween, it's a, well, it's just, uh, never mind. Anyhow, it snowed here in the big city of Chicago, uh, and boy, did it snow. Halloween day was absolutely pitiful. The weather, the snow was blowing sideways all day long. And so one of one of the key interesting takeaways that uh, for the week for me actually was uh, the office is out there in Rosemont, and so every morning around five a.m. I have to belly up and saddle up and drive out to Rosemont. Rosemont is uh, at O'Hare Airport, and so with that, I have to do the uh, I have to drive right. I could take the. There, there's other alternates, alternative uh, methods to get from the loop to O'Hare. You know, I could take the Metra. Uh, I could take uh, I could take the Blue Line, uh, and uh, I could also drive. And so um, I've, I've chosen to drive. And boy, uh, it's just uh, you know, you get on the interstate when it's snowing. 
and you, you know you're driving cautiously at least i am uh you know 20 30 40 miles an hour on the on-ramp right and and you get on the interstate and you know and so i'm thinking well maybe i should not do over 50 miles an hour oh no you got to you got to remember you <laughs> this is chicago man you uh, you know i got on the interstate doing 40 miles an hour and a truck passed me on the on ramp you know and and he had it floored and he was spinning and sliding and jesus christ he almost it was it was unbelievable uh, but Every, the people were doing 70, 80, 90 miles an hour in the snow. Uh, so uh, slightly panicked, uh, white knuckling it the entire way uh, in the slow lane, of course. Uh, I eventually made it uh, and it snowed even further on Halloween day. And so uh, following the snow uh, was a uh, rapid. <laughs> and here, here's the thing, right? So uh, Halloween night after all of that snow then it started to rain <laughs> it was crazy i tell you uh yeah and that's the and now uh it's uh starting to dry up <laughs> i'm sure by uh the time the sun rises in the morning or later this morning uh it'll be um a nice clear day and in a clear cold day here in chicago uh but yeah that's so that's that's what's going on uh here in uh where we are how about you um hopefully your halloween was well hopefully you were able to enjoy some sort of festivities you know halloween was a real big thing uh growing up in uh where you know growing up in the south uh as, as a kid uh and we just took it to the next level it was always fun to see who had the best costume who used the most professional makeup and all of that stuff and man it was so much fun uh and you know uh, in 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 it's it doesn't seem that way in big cities because it's just more like you know another ritual another holiday that someone you know you have to hey you know and it just doesn't seem to have the flair that it had when i was a kid but you know not all things do as as you uh, you know continue to age and so uh with me realizing that i i, I truly understand that i'm not, uh, you know i don't wish to be a teenager all my life but um those those are the those are the uh uh interesting takeaways that i still remember as a child uh in halloween uh growing up but uh you know it's it's be the beginning of winter uh here in north america uh elsewhere in the southern hemisphere uh summer is just getting underway we're looking forward to another couple trips to uh south of the equator this winter uh, and wanted to uh, also uh, make some more additional plans, uh, like, like I always do in advance as the winter approaches. But uh, things will be different, of course, this time, uh, this year, uh, and here in the coming weeks uh, as we move the show to Florida. Uh, and so um, that's going to, uh, I think we've got all of, all of the bugs worked out. Uh, we've got the uh, we've got some ideas on getting um, everything put together down there as well, making sure that the uh, palmetto bugs don't attack me every time I come to the studio. 
Uh, lots of plans uh, for all of that as well. And I'll share that with you uh, as my adventures continue, um, of course. And so I'm looking forward to that and sharing that with you uh, as uh, we head into the new year. Uh, and, and, you know, so one of the things that I wanted to share, you know, uh, and I wanted to stay with the same theme. So, you know, uh, Crash has given me the googly eyes like the you know, basically shut the hell up. And so that, uh, to that, I will grant him his wish. And I wanted to also say, uh, before I do though, um, uh, you know, this is the week that we present the talks, right? And so this week I wanted to, I wanted to kind of reach back into the, um, into the core fundamentals of what a hacker uh, knows and, and does. And so I was asked earlier this week or last week, actually, uh, someone had asked me, you know, they're uh, you know, basically, hey, Gummo, you know, what's ha- how do I become a black hat or how do I become a great hacker? And, uh, you know, and I always tell people the same thing. Uh, you know, it's not for me. It was never something that I chose to do. It's just something that uh, it's some someone uh, who I became. Uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of you who are smiling, uh, who feel the same way, uh, as you came up, uh, through the ranks and the years of, uh, knowledge. And so, uh, to become a, uh, great hacker, uh, entails a great life experience and understanding of those experiences. And not only that, but also the consequences, uh, because if you've listened to the show, you know that, uh, yeah, I, I was definitely, uh, you know, I'm a retired uh, black hat uh, and I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm proud that I'm retired because uh, there's, you know, whatever. And uh, and so as you age and mature, you realize that, um, you know, it's not really worth breaking the laws uh, to get your point across or, you, or your message out there or uh, even to earn uh, a living. Uh, and um, all of those all of those options are available to you as a hacker and you have to decide on which side of the fence to, uh, that you choose to uh, uh, stand on. And so I've always advocated that you do not break the law and that you always do the right thing and use your skills for something good. Uh, and I continue to advocate that as well. Um, so uh yeah uh, uh one more thing uh i don't i don't know if i spoke about it on le- the, the show last week as well but uh if you are in chicago or if you have a web browser please go to pgm.org uh and consider uh either volunteering or donating to this wonderful cause uh it's the pacific garden mission uh located here in the downtown chicago on canal street and uh, it's just a wonderful organization that supports the homeless, uh, battered women and families, uh, and it allows people to get their lives together and get back on track. Uh, check it out, pgm.org, uh, you know, and please feel free to uh, find a way in, in your heart to donate in any which way you can. And uh, I guess that would be, uh, I guess that would be an ask because, uh, you know, I donate one, uh, my time once a month to uh, the mission. And uh, I encourage you to do the same, uh, if not in Chicago, in your local hometown or wherever you are. Uh, with that said, uh, getting back to the core fundamental, what the hell I'm trying to get my point across to is that being a hacker actually involves not only life experiences, but understanding of, uh, you know, you don't have to be a, a goddamn technical wizard rocket man to be a hacker. You just have to understand processes. And one of those processes, of course, is um, something called social engineering. And 
you know, there's a lot of talks out there. There's a lot of people that have their own opinions on social engineering, but I think it's best that we take a few years back uh, or we take a step back a few years, quite a number of years. Let's go back to some of the origins of social engineering and some of the people who actually are able to describe it uh, the best or who uh, Crash and I feel who were able to describe uh, uh, get the get the idea and the point across and the understanding across of social engineering. Uh, I've used it in the past from uh, all kinds of fun intricacies uh, to uh, very serious issues. And so uh, it, it is one of the core things that you should uh, understand. Um, and for that, we're going to go ahead and run some uh, great talks about social engineering this evening or this morning rather and uh, I wanted to share that with you as well as Crash and so here it is uh, here's here's some information on social engineering or a talk or two uh, on social engineering and uh, so sit back relax enjoy and um, I'll come back after the talk okay so this talks called hacking humans uh, social engineering and techniques for how to protect against them so it's not an overly technical talk, so you can sort of relax a bit. There's no uh, complex maths or coding involved. So loose agenda of what I'm going to go through this afternoon. So we're going to talk a bit about what social engineering actually is. Then we're going to talk about some famous social engineering cases. There's some examples. Then we're going to go through social engineering techniques and sort of a rough high-level framework which attackers go through when they try to mount an attack. And then we're going to talk about how to protect yourselves and your company against social engineers which is the, the important part. And then I've got a few interesting resources which I can share with you at the end. So quick disclaimer first, I'm sure I don't need to say it, but you know, I'll say it anyway. Social engineering generally leads to bad and illegal things, so that's the whole point of the talk isn't to teach you how to do illegal things, it's to teach you how to protect yourself from it, because you don't want to end up like this guy. So social engineering is a huge, huge subject so you know we, we can't do the entire thing justice in an hour I mean some people spend their lives studying this stuff it's all psychology and, and all that good stuff but what we're going to do is we're going to treat it as an art of the possible so it gives you the, the basic groundings what social engineering is and the steps that you go through to do it and then you know if you're interested in the subject I've got some good resources and books at the end which you can follow up with so first of all let's start off with a little story a little fireside story so we've got a guy called Keith who's sitting there late at night working in tech support, daydreaming about his tea break where he's going to go and own his game of uh, pool with his friend. And then suddenly he gets a phone call. So he picks it up and goes, hello, this is Keith from technical support. How can I help you? And there's a panicked voice on the end of the phone. Keith, it's Tom, senior financial VP from floor nine. Um, I've got a big meeting tomorrow and I can't get into my system to access the PowerPoints and spreadsheets. If I can't access these systems, then you know, I'm screwed. We've got a massive investor meeting in the morning. So Tom's like, okay, well, have you gone through the password reset process? Well, of course I've gone through it. Why do you think I'm phoning you? It keeps on locking out when I go through it. And he's starting to get quite irate and sort of upset at this point. So after a bit of toing and froing, sort of Keith decides, okay, well, I'll, I'll do a password reset for you now and we'll get you back into the system. You know, you're, you're an executive. I don't want to piss you off. So he says to Tom, you know, well, what, what do you want me to change your password to? And he goes, oh, I'll change it to monkey25. Made it up on the spot. <laughs> um, so Keith does that, and then Tom tries to tries the password, and then suddenly he's in. He's like, oh, my God, thank you very much. Because of you, I'm now going to be able to do this meeting tomorrow. So you've just saved this massive investment meeting. Thank you. And he, and he hangs up. 
So Keith's sitting there, you know, he's very happy with himself, you know, he's daydreaming about running down the corridor, high-fiving all his friends, because he's now just helped a senior exec on floor nine, and, you know, this exec now knows who Keith is. So great, he's done a bit of networking as well. So whilst Keith's doing this, Tom, who's not actually a senior VP in the company, is actually a hacker, he's copying lots of documents off the network onto a USB stick, and then he leaves the building. So a very simple example, but it's a, you know, a, a typical type of thing that can happen in a corporate environment. And I've worked in uh, some banks in the UK where these sorts of things have happened in technical support. Okay, so what is social engineering? So I went to my good friend Wikipedia for a definition, and it's the act of influencing someone to take an action that may not be in their best interest. So it's getting people to do something that's not good for them. So there's three different types of uh, kind of social engineering attacks out there. So the one that we're all probably familiar with is phishing, where we get those really annoying emails uh, from people, you know, who've either got rich relatives in some African country, or you've got an email trying to get you to log onto your bank account with a very convincing bank logon page. Second type is phishing, which is where you get people phoning you up. So, you know, the typical call center phone calls you get, I, don't, I presume you get them over here, where it's a call from Microsoft, supposedly, and they've detected a virus on your system, and they want to get access to your system to help you out. That's a vishing attack. And the next one is impersonation, which is where someone's taking on a persona of someone else, which is kind of what we're going to focus on in this talk. So a few stats. So there's a, a link at the bottom there from socialengineer.org, and they've got some pretty good stats on there. Uh, most of them are US-based, but it kind of illustrates the point. So 90% of all email is spam. I think we all know that when we look at our inboxes every day. And phishing represents 77% of all social-based attacks. So it's, it's still one of the most popular types of attacks out there because it's so easy to do at scale. And clicking links in emails accounted for 88% of all reported phishing. So that's like your typical, you know, click on this link to reset your bank account password. It goes to a very convincing page which looks identical to your bank but is actually an imposter site. So vishing, uh, so in 2012 in the US, there's 2.4 million customers targeted for phone fraud. But then, in just in the first half of 2013, it's 2.3 million customers. So you can see how it's you know, exponentially growing in severity. And to large corporations, the average loss per account can equal around $42,500. So it can have a massive impact on companies if, like I say, a bank account gets compromised. So impersonation, so typical types of impersonation, you know, like medical ID theft is a very good one, where people steal your medical data and use that to build up a persona of who you are, because medical data is very private, so therefore it's generally quite trusted information. And typically the top place for ID theft is in the workplace. So, you know, your companies may spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on firewalls and intrusion protection systems, which is all well and good and, you know, should be done, but the weakest link in your company is going to be the people working for it. And 80% of thefts involve disabling or bypassing control. So we saw that in the, in the story at the beginning. Keith, the technical support engineer, sort of bypassed the control and did a, a password reset without really doing too much checking. So who makes up so, uh, social engineers? So, you know, typically we have hackers. They're the ones we all know, know about. Penetration testers are people who are legitimately paid by companies to try and break into their systems, and they'll either do that via traditional hacking or via um, trying to impersonate people and extract information like passwords from people. But then you've got your typical things like spies and governments, you know, all the sorts of things that we see 
in James Bond films where you know, the spy takes on a personality or a persona of someone else. Uh, disgruntled employees, recruiters are very good ones, are trying to manipulate you to do something that's not necessarily in your best interest. I get about 10 of those calls a day. And salespeople, because they're trying to get you to buy something which you maybe don't need, but they're going to try and get you to buy it anyway. It's all a form of social engineering. Can anyone think of who the best type of social engineers are that's not on the list? Actors, yeah, that's a good one. I was going to say children. <laughs> Especially my daughter, she can pretty much get me to do anything, I'm, I'm sure. And there's a lot of people nodding, so it's a similar, similar situation. So why social engineering? Well, it consistently works. Um, people are very easy to manipulate, and as, you know, as we'll see later, people generally want to be nice and be, be helpful, and people use that to their advantage. As we sort of said before, people are the biggest vulnerability of any network. So if you haven't gone through any of the mitigation techniques, which we're going to talk about later, you know, it doesn't matter how much you spend on expensive hardware to protect your network. If someone's just going to go in and copy files off onto a USB stick and take them out of the building, then that's a problem. And also, it's a path of least resistance. So if you're trying to get passwords to access a system, you, know, you could do it the traditional way and try and do a data breach and get the password files and then brute force them. That's, that's a lot of work to try and extract a password. Or you can just manipulate someone and get them to, to tell you it. So some typical examples of uh, social engineering attacks. So customer services, you know, they're people on the, the front line of the company on the phones. You know, all it takes is you to do you know, five or so phone calls to different people, extracting different bits of information every time to help build up a larger picture which will then allow you to go in and sort of do your main attack. Delivery staff is another big problem. I mean, uh, if someone turns up in a, a brown boiler suit carrying a load of packages, generally companies tend to let them in. And if you don't escort them around the building, then you've just given someone access to the building quite easily. So generally any type of phone call where you're going to get someone on the phone is a very good way of getting information because they can't see you, so it's a very one-sided type of interaction. And as we've seen in our example, technical support is a, a great way of trying to get information on a system, especially if you target junior members of staff who are fresh out of college or university who, who aren't very experienced in these things, they're going to be very eager to help. So let's look at a few sort of famous software engineering cases just so we can see you know, where people have done this and ultimately paid the price of going to prison. So has anyone heard of Kevin Mitnick? You know, very famous guy now. Uh, so he used to be quite dodgy in his younger years. Uh, so he uh, had a high profile arrest in 1995 and he spent five years in prison. And he's done loads of hacks from the, you know, from the 1979 onwards. So when he was 16, he broke into debt computers and he was sort of pirating software off of their servers. And he's done things like uh, riding the bus network in LA for free by hacking the, uh, the payment systems. And he's, uh, in the end, he was charged with 14 counts of fraud and eight cases of unauthorized entry. Of course, these days he's a reformed character, so he's now a successful security consultant and he spends most of his time teaching companies how to protect themselves from people like him. So he's, he's actually made a very good career off the back of it, but you know, he had to spend quite a few years in prison to do that. Uh, those are some books that he's written. I um, highly recommend them. Um, I'll, I'll, show the, I'll show them again at the end of the presentation. Uh, the first two, so The Art of Intrusion and The Art of Deception, are probably some of the best books I've ever read on the subject. And then Ghost in the Wires is kind of his biography, so it's a fascinating read.
I read them on holiday once to my wife's horror. <laughs> Reading technical books on holiday. So next one is a guy called Frank Abagnale. Has anyone heard of this guy? Yeah. So he was a, yep. Yeah. Can you see my next slide? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're right, the, the film Catch Me If You Can. So um, he was a confidence trickster and check forger and imposter. So he did all sorts of things like uh, taking on different identities to become an airline pilot, doctors, lawyers, all that sort of thing. And he was very, very convincing. And he even managed to escape custody twice. He was quite a slippery chap as well. But as, as a guy at the front said here, there's a film with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks called Catch Me If You Can, which is kind of a Hollywood dramatization of his life. It's a, Brilliant film, if you've not seen it. There's another little sort of snippet from the film there where he's taken on the persona of an airline pilot, which is quite frightening to think that someone who's not actually a pilot is helping to fly your plane. I'll bear that in mind when I do my 30 hour journey back to the UK. So final example I want to look at is Charles Ponzi. So everyone's probably heard of the Ponzi scheme or the pyramid scheme. And this is a mail fraud scheme using international reply coupons. So you buy the reply coupons and then you can sell them for stamps. And you generally get more money when you sell them than what it costs to buy them. So he started doing this, but then he sort of turned it into a pyramid scheme. We had lots of people investing money so that he could use that money to buy more reply coupons overseas. And he sort of carried on building up this, uh, this ruse until it all eventually sort of collapsed. And then he can't quite remember how long he spent in prison, but I mean, he, I don't think he made it out alive. Okay, so let's look at some social engineering techniques. Let's get on to sort of the, the process of how it's done. So it's generally broken down into four stages. So we've got information gathering, pretexting, elicitation, and manipulation. So we'll go through each of those in turn. So to do a social engineering attack, it takes a lot of preparation. So you're not just going to target someone and say, right, I'm going to social engineer you and expect to be successful at it because you won't, you'll probably fail. So you need to gather as much information as you can from different sources. And there's various different ways of doing it. And one of the easiest ways of doing it is this, fishing through the bins or dumpster diving as they call it. So you're literally looking for any bits of information or paper that's been thrown out at a company or someone's home. So bank statements, if you don't shred them and you just throw them away, there's a gold mine of information there. Prescriptions, you know, for medication is very useful. So then you can find out information if they've got any particular illnesses, which you can use to your advantage. And uh, so pretty much anything like that. I mean, another example as well is if you go through someone's bins and it's full of whiskey bottles, then you can probably guess that they've got an alcohol problem. So, you know, getting them down the pub might be a good way to do a social engineering attack against them. This day and age, you can use lots of uh, social networks. This is called open source intelligence, OSINT, they call it, where you're using public facing sites to try and extract information. So not everyone has their Facebook profile locked down. Some people have, still have a lot of information on there that's public. Uh, the same again with Twitter, so you can look at the sorts of things that people are tweeting and build up quite a good picture around someone's personality. And LinkedIn is an absolute goldmine because you, know, you generally put your entire career history on there. So you can get lots of information from that. But also just doing a good old-fashioned Google or a Bing search. I'll put that on there to balance it out, but generally Google. <laughs> so another good way of uh, stealing information is by using malware to install keyloggers on people's systems. So you know, if you want to get someone's password, why not just record the keystrokes that they're typing in on their terminal? Uh, another popular one as well is uh, malware which takes regular screenshots from your system and then posts them off to a server. So if you've got confidential information on your screen, then you can have this malware just taking image dumps from the screen, compressing them, then sending them off to a server. 
which is why you should always run anti-malware software. Another one is shoulder surfing. Again, very common. So if you sit in there and you can just look over, look over someone's shoulder. Um, I was on the train, I commute to work. On the train, sort of stood up and I could see someone typing on their emails. You know, you just look over and you can see exactly what they're typing. You know, in this case, someone was writing a message to their husband. It's very easy to do, you just stood up and looked. So you have to be very aware of what you're doing. So if you're doing something that's company focused and you're on a train, just imagine you know, the amount of people that could be looking over your shoulder and seeing what you're doing, or viewing your bank balance in a public place. You know, it's all things you need to be aware of. There are ways to help protect yourself against shoulder surfing, and these, these, actually, <laughs> these actually exist, they're called privacy scarves. When, when I found the photo, I was intrigued, and there is actually companies that sell these, although you'd look like a bit of an idiot using it. <laughs> good, on, good on a hot winter's day, though, in, uh, in Sydney. Okay, so the next stage then is pretexting. So this is the practice of presenting oneself as someone else in order to obtain private information. So it's acting, it's taking on someone else's persona. And so general principles that you want to follow when you're doing pretexting. So the more planning and research you do against the persona you want to take on is going to lead to more success. So as I said, you're not just going to target someone and then go straight in, in for the kill, as it were. You're going to put a lot of preparation in and try and work out what your new identity is going to be. Shared interests make success more likely. So if you're a fan of Manchester United Football Club and you know, and you know, your, uh, you know your target is as well, then it gives you a shared interest. So when you start trying to manipulate them, you can just spend a lot of time talking about shared interests to help build up a rapport with that person. So you don't necessarily go straight in for the kill. You might spend weeks building up a friendship with someone. Good acting definitely helps. So you, know, you need to look convincing when you're doing it. So it is no different to acting in a play. You are taking on kind of a real world acting role. Another principle as well is keeping it simple. So try not to overcomplicate the persona that you're taking on. Because the more complicated you make it, the easier it is going to be to fail and sort of screw up. And you also try and use information that doesn't need any verification as well. So if you say something that the person maybe finds a bit suspect and then they're going to go off and then try and verify that information. If you've made a mistake, then that's going to help unravel your uh, persona. So when you're, when you're planning a pretexting uh, the stage, you, know, you need to define what it is you're actually trying to achieve. It goes without saying, with anything, you know, good planning always leads to more success. And you need to plan for different reactions to stray off the happy path. So if all goes well, you're going to go in and do your pretexting attack against someone, and if it all goes well, you'll get to the, the result that you want. But what if it doesn't go well? What are all the different failure cases that can happen? You need to prepare for those. So if you're trying to, say, uh, take on a persona of someone who's single, and not in a relationship, and then you accidentally turn up and you've got your wedding ring on, and they notice, you know, what, what would you do in that situation? And we'll just being friendly be sufficient. I mean, do you need to go to all the effort of taking on this big, big acting persona? Could just being nice to someone be all you need to do? It could be just as simple as that. So this is another sort of de uh, definition of social engineering. So it's a clever manipulation of the natural human tendency to trust. And the key word there is trust. So it's building up trust with another person. Okay, so we've talked about pretexting, which is about you know, building up the persona of uh, the person that you're trying to be. 
So the next step is elicitation, and this is the act of getting information without directly asking for it. So now if I go up to you and say, can you tell me your password? No. <laughs> so you're trying to get someone to give you information without directly giving it up, or without directly asking for it. So elicitation is all about trying to exploit human nature. So most people want to be polite, you know, not everyone, but generally most people are nice and want to be helpful, especially at a conference like this, you know, people are generally very nice and want to help. And people want to appear well informed as well. So nobody wants to be the guy or the girl who doesn't know the answer to something. It makes you look a bit stupid. So, so if you ask the right questions, and it makes people feel like they're being informed and being the person with all the knowledge, and people might generally be a bit more loose-lipped and sort of tell you stuff that they're not supposed to, just to make themselves look and feel better. And people want to be appreciated as well. So if you're, as part of your persona, if you're being very nice and appreciative, you know, thanking them, you know, maybe buy them a drink for helping you out with something, you know, people like to be appreciated. You know, a bit of a pat on the back. And generally, honest people don't like to withhold information or lie. So if you're a good, honest person, then you know, lying isn't in your, in, in your nature, so you're going to be very truthful in the information that you give up. So the best way to succeed at this, then, is really understanding how to communicate with people. So this is why you know, I say it's very easy for us to talk about it now for an hour, but actually this, some of this stuff can take years and years to master because it's all about human psychology. And you need to be able to adapt communications to fit a situation. So it's a bit like what we were saying before about trying to cater for the, uh, the failure paths in your pretexting. You, know. you need to change your communication style to fit the situation. So if someone starts getting a bit aggressive towards you because you're going in too strong, you need to be able to adapt your style of communication to dial it back a bit. And you want to build a bond with your target. So you're not just going to go straight in directly and try and get the information out of someone. You might spend a long period of time befriending them. So you might meet them down the pub, build up a friendship over several weeks or months, and then you try and get the information that you want so you don't, try to, so, so you don't arouse any suspicion. And obviously this goes without saying that whenever you're with that person, you have to stay in character. <laughs> so if, if, if you go out of character, or they see you going out of character when you're on the phone, or if they see you around locally, then that's not gonna, that's not gonna help you. Also, you need to know how to use effective questioning techniques. So we'll look at some of these now. So four main questioning techniques that are out there. So we've got neutral, open, closed, and leading. So a neutral question doesn't directly target the person on how to answer the question. So you're not leading or directing in any way. So if you say, how do you like the weather today? That kind of invites you to say as much as you want. Then you've got open-ended questions, which encourages a full, meaningful answer using the subject's own knowledge. So tell me about the relationship with your father. It's a very open question. You can, you can go into as much detail as you want. Or how do you feel about the election candidates? You know, it gives you the opportunity to be a lot more open in how you answer the question. But then on the flip side of that, we have closed questions. So, you know, do you get on with your father? Yes or no. You know, it doesn't really invite you to say much more because it's very directed in how it's uh, being asked. And who are you going to vote for? You know, Trump or Hillary, you know, in the case of the American election. It doesn't really invite you to say much more. And then we've got leading questions. So the, these are more open in nature, but you're trying to lead the person down a particular way of answering the question. So the example on the screen there, so do you have any problems with your boss? It's kind of 
implying that you might have some problems with your boss. And then that might kind of coerce your answer a little bit. Or how fast was the red car going when it smashed into the blue car? So you're kind of putting the idea into the person's head that it was actually the red car that was going fast and them sort of fault. But it might not have been, but you're trying to lead them into a particular way of answering. So normally when you're doing this, and you want to try and funnel the questions. So you'll start off very neutral and very neutral, and then you'll go into a more open style. And as you start to get towards the information that you're trying to get from the subject, you'll then start going a lot more close. And if necessary, you'll use more directed questions. So you think of it as a funnel. OK, so we've covered pretexting and elicitation. So pretexting is taking on a persona, and elicitation is using that persona to extract information. But what's the difference between manipulation and influencing? So very, there's very subtle differences between them. So influencing is about getting someone to change their mind in a way that is good for them. So in the case of the party last night, if you're considering having that third whiskey and your friend says, oh, I don't think you should do that because you're supposed to be up early, you've got to talk at nine o'clock. You know, they're trying to influence you in a way that's good for you by helping you. Whereas manipulation is influencing someone to change their mind in a way that is not good for them. So in the case of the story at the beginning, you know, the person who was calling the, the technical support line was directly trying to manipulate the person on the phone. So it wasn't a way that was good for them, it was very bad for them in the end. So influencing generally ends up in a win-win situation. So it's a win for you and it's a win for the person that you're influencing. Whereas manipulation is generally a win-lose scenario. It goes without saying that manipulation is generally bad, but for social engineering it's good. It's kind of the whole, the whole point of it is you're trying to manipulate someone. So if we go back to our original definition from the beginning of the talk where we said it's an act of influencing someone to take an action that may not be in their best interest, actually we're talking about manipulation. Okay, so what are some typical manipulation techniques? So fear is a typical technique or the, what's called the fear then relief technique. So you make someone scared about something and then you offer them instant relief to take that fear away. So an example here, so hi, this is technical support. We've detected a virus on your machine and it's gonna lock all your files. Oh shit, I'm gonna lose all my files. So fear starts to set in. We need to install a virus killer, but if you give us the password to your machine, we'll log on and we'll put the virus checker on there and everything could be good. So that's the relief. So you get, you get the person into a sort of heightened state of fear and then you offer immediate relief <coughs> so that they trust you. Guilt is another way. You use guilt to, as a way of making someone comply. So you do someone a favour and then you use it against them later. So blackmail is a very typical technique here. So an example, I need, I need you to copy these files for me. You owe me, you, you owe me a favour after I kept X a secret for you earlier. You know, it's guilt tripping someone into doing something for you. Another technique, so the foot in the door technique. So asking the victim to do a very small request first gets, you, gets the foot in the door. Then once they comply, you can then follow on and get more information out of them. So a very common technique used by salespeople. So if you get door-to-door -door salesmen at your door, they might ask you a question like, you know, how's the weather? You, know, you, you, give, them a, you give them a response. But by getting that positive response from that person in, in the first place, it actually makes it a lot easier for them to then start up a conversation with you. So one here, you know, can you tell me the time? Can you spare some change? Typical like questions that you use to lead in with someone. So those are the 
the main stages that you go through for mounting a social engineering attack, I say that's it's it's quite a high level framework. You can spend a lot of time going into the psychological intricacies of it. But what we really want to know is how can we protect ourselves from this? So we're going to go through some techniques um, that we can use for personal mitigation for yourselves, but then also what you want your companies to be doing. So if your companies aren't doing any of these things, then maybe you can go back to your offices next week and try and get them to change. So as we said then, common targets in a company uh, tend to be junior staff because they're very eager to, uh, to please and help. Contractors are also very common people to be targeted because um, they don't have the same sort of vested interest in the company as what a full-time member of staff does. And I've worked with various companies before, um, or contractors that are from outsourcing operations as well, where culturally, uh, from the countries they're from, they're very eager to try and help because they, they don't want to be seen as evasive or not helpful. So they're very good people to, to target. Admin staff as well and support staff. Again, people that are probably more junior in the company. So if you go in pretending to be an executive and you're trying to get information out of them, they're going to they're want to help. So they're very easy to try and target. Whereas if you try and go against someone who's higher up in a company, they're probably going to be a bit more savvy and not as easily manipulat manipulatable. <coughs> so if you've got someone phoning you up or turning up at the office, the best thing to do to start with is ask them for ID. Very simple. Can you show me your ID? You know, if, if a guy turns up wearing a brown boiler suit carrying a load of parcels, you know, are you just going to let him in or are you going to check his credentials first? Is he from DHL? Is he from, is he from Bob's delivery service? You, know, you need to check. And watching for any out-of-character questions as well. So again, going back to the delivery man example, if, if he turns up and then he starts asking about where the server room is or things that are out of, very out-of-character for a delivery man, then that should be an immediate red flag. Again, a lot of these are kind of common sense, which, which you'd be glad to know. So don't let guests roam free in a building. So again, delivery man, if he turns up and he, and he has to personally deliver a parcel to someone and you've checked his credentials and you think they're okay, then go with him. Make sure he's escorted or get someone else to escort him. Don't just let them sort of wander off around the building. This one, again, should be obvious, especially to us technical folk, but it isn't obvious to everyone don't plug in thumb drives that you find lying on the floor. So, you know, a very common scenario is you might see a, you know, a 16 gig thumb drive on the floor, you'll, you'll pick it up and think, oh, 16 gig, that's quite a good one. <laughs> you know, because they're not, they're not cheap. Then you might go and plug it in into your laptop and then that could be where keyloggers get installed or, or worse. So when you're out and about in the out of the organization, just be, be aware of what you're saying. So, you know, pubs, and bars are very bad for this. Once you've had a few drinks and you're out with your colleagues, you tend to start being a bit looser with the, the type of conversation you're having. So you might start talking about projects you're working on at the company, or you might start taking the piss out of your boss. I'm sure everyone's really professional and doesn't actually do that, but you, you never know who's around you listening. You know, all it needs is someone who's deliberately targeting your company to be sitting on the next table, listening in. They don't have to do anything, you're just giving them loads of information to help them build up their pretext. So shredding documents is very important. So when you finish with your bank statements at home, don't just sling them in the bin. You know, buy one of those small portable shredders and shred them first. Because then if anyone is going through your rubbish trying to find the information, you've just made their life instantly harder by shredding everything. So prescriptions, bank statements, letters, anything. 
Uh, again, going back to thumb drives, but don't store really important sensitive documents on thumb drives because they're very easy to lose. You know, they fall out of your pocket or you leave them on a train. Or if you do have to use thumb drives to store documents, make sure they're encrypted with a strong password. Don't write the password on the side of the USB thumb drive. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen someone do that before. It's hilarious. So if you're using company laptops, they should all have drive encryption on them. You know, laptops are very easy to steal. Probably not as easy to lose, but people do lose them. But you know, if, if someone steals your, your laptop, make sure you've got encryption on it. You know, Macs, for example, come with encrypted drives by default. I think Windows 10 does now, does it? Or do you have to enable it? I've not, I've not used Windows for a while. But make sure you're using some kind of full disk encryption. Larger corporations generally mandate this as well, especially in regulated environments, that you have full disk encryption. Again, be aware of who's looking over your shoulder. You, know, you could be sitting on, on the train or the bus, working on some documents for work that you need to get done for tomorrow, but do you know who's sitting behind you and looking at your screen or sitting next to you? you, know, if, you if you've got important sales figures or source code or anything on your screen, you, you think it, you know, you're being good by working on the train, but actually anyone could be looking at what you're doing. And the final one for personal mitigation techniques then is educate yourself, you know, by going to talks like this, reading some of the book resources I'm going to put up at the end. It's, you know, there's lots of really good um, stuff on YouTube as well about um, social engineering, which is very insightful. And as well as resources like Pluralsight, you know, there's courses on there as well. Okay, so we talked about kind of personal mitigation techniques. So what's about corporate mitigation? So what, sh what should companies be doing? So one thing that a company should do is uh, start identifying what information assets are most valuable and then marking them accordingly. So what do we mean by this? So we mean using information coding. So if you've got documents that are marked with green, okay for a release, then you kind of know that they're okay to be in the public domain and that's okay. Then you could have amber, release only with authorization. You know, if you have that on the front cover, you, it's an immediate flag that, okay, I can't really go sending this document off unless I get permission from someone higher up in the company right the way down to red, which is confidential do not release. You know, it's a very sensitive commercial document which should never leave the building. But just by doing a very simple thing, by information coding all of your documents on the front page, it just becomes very obvious <coughs> what you can and can't do with those documents. So if your company doesn't have this, I mean, generally large companies do have corporate security policies, but if you're in a smaller company that doesn't, it's a good idea to get them written. I mean, they're not the most interesting of documents granted, but it is important to have them. And a good place to start is actually on this website here. So sans.org has a load of um, open source templates which you can use to kickstart your own security policy documents. But once you've written them, obviously, if you just have you know, 10 or 20 documents, you're not, you can't really expect your staff to sit down and read them all, because they won't. So you need to follow that up with suitable training as well. So I don't know how it works in Australia, but in the UK when you have regulated financial companies, you have to have training plans in place annually to take people through all the key highlights of the security policies. So it's important to have these written down, because if you do have to dismiss someone for breaking the, the security policy, you've then got that document that you can refer back to. So as an organisation, you should be keeping your software regularly patched and updated. It goes without saying, we're all technical in this room. It's very important. But if you don't do this, then it leads to exploits and vulnerabilities being launched against your network. 
So if everyone has heard about the WannaCry um, virus that went around not so long ago, it caused absolute chaos in the UK, especially around our National Health Service, because they hadn't patched all of their machines, so they were still running Windows XP and old copies of Windows XP that weren't patched up to the latest version. So it made it very easy for that exploit to get passed around. So going back to document shredding, if you're in a larger company, then hiring in one of those document shredding services is very useful. You know, where you get the confidential waste boxes. Anything you finish with, just put them in there if it's paper, and then they get professionally shredded and disposed of. Companies are, you know, it's, it, we're talking about dumpster diving, companies are a good target for people going through the bins, just because it's an absolute goldmine of information. If you've got 100 members of staff and they're all throwing stuff in the bins, just, just imagine what information you're going to find. So this one then, so you know, never assume that your company uh, is too small to be a target. If your company is quite small, the chances are you're more likely to be a target because you'll be easier to infiltrate. So never go on the assumption that this isn't going to happen to you because it probably will. Okay, so I said this, I said this talk would be nice and easy. So um, that, we've covered most of it. So in summary then, so Social engineering is the act of influencing someone to take an action that may not be in their best interest. You know, you're trying to get people to do something that's not good. And you're using lots of manipulation techniques to try and do that. We talked about the different types of uh, social engineers that are out there, ranging from your more typical hackers, your legitimate penetration testers, through to all these different types of people, including recruiters. They're one of my hated ones. So why social engineering? Again, it consistently works. It's very easy to do. It's you know, generally easier to try and get information out of someone than it is to try and break into their network. People are the biggest risk in your company. So as we said before, you could be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on firewalls and intrusion detection systems, but all of that, you know, which is good, you shouldn't stop doing that. But your people in your organization are still your weakest link. So having good training about how to mitigate social engineering is very valuable because it stops those people doing something stupid. And again, it's the path to least resistance. So if you can get someone to give up a password, it's generally a lot easier than trying to score yourself a data breach and then trying to hack all of the passwords or brute force all of the passwords. So we went through the, the four stages of social engineering. So information gathering, pretexting, which is about taking on a persona to convince someone that you're someone else. Elicitation, which is then using that persona as a way of getting information from people without directly asking for it. And then we looked at some different manipulation techniques that you can use, like the fear and relief technique, the foot in the door technique. There's many, many more, so we've just covered some of the, the common ones. And then we followed up with some personal and corporate mitigation. And as we've seen, a lot of them are actually kind of very obvious um, common sense things that you need to do, like asking for ID for any visitors who come in the building. Don't let people roam around free in the building. Shredding documents, not just throwing them in the bin. So they're all very common sense, but they're, all, but they're very, very important. Okay, so some resources which you might want to read if you're interested in this subject. So we've got the, the three Kevin Mitnick books which I highlighted at the beginning. So Art of Deception and the Art of Intrusion. Both absolutely fantastic reads. You'll find them difficult to put down when you start reading them. And then there's uh, Ghost in the Wires, which is Kevin's uh, biography. Again, it's a fascinating read, just looking at some of the things he got up to.
this book here is kind of considered the bible of social engineering, the art of human hacking. It's, uh, it's not an easy read, it's about 800 pages long, but the amount of detail that book goes into is, is absolutely fascinating if you want to go further. This one here, uh, What Everybody is Saying, uh, by Joe Navarro. He's an ex-FBI interrogator, and it's all about how to read people's body language to tell if they're lying. It's a fantastic book. So if you're talking to someone and they're sitting there rubbing their hands, for example, a lot, that's kind of a sign that they're nervous. Or if they're sitting there steepling with their hands like that, that's a sign of confidence. He goes through lots of these uh, different techniques which I've used in um, interrogations against murderers to try and work out if they're lying or not. So, fascinating. Okay, so that's it. So, thank you for coming along. My name's Stephen Haunts. Um, I'm the co-founder and CTO of a small payments company in the UK called LadderPay. And I'm also an author on Pluralsight. So I've got a course coming out soon which kind of covers the same uh, subject as what we've been talking about today. That's due out uh, sometime in September. And I'm a regular speaker at a lot of these events, so I've done the vast majority of the NDC events now, and I've sort of spoken in Belgium and Poland and other sorts of countries like that. And I also run a .NET user group back in the UK called Derbyshire.net. So if anyone happens to want to travel 10,500 miles to the UK and then get a four-hour train up to the centre of the UK, then feel free to come along on the last Thursday of every month to my user group. You'll be welcome. I'll also buy you a beer for going to that level of effort as well. So, thank you very much, everyone. I hope I've, I hope you've not made you too paranoid. <laughs> and uh, you can now go and get a coffee. Thank you. Right on. So, you know, that's uh, the in, in you know that's only sort of a a primer of what what uh, social engineering is about. And so, uh, you, there's a lot to read. I would encourage you that you read some of the older material on social engineering. Uh, that's definitely required understanding and knowledge as you obtain your um, your elite uh, hacker status uh, as well. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's been an interesting few weeks, uh, and, I, and I will get to that when I get to where I'm getting and share that with everybody. Man, all I can say is some of the conversations I've had over the past several weeks have bordered uh, intense to absolutely ins absurd and ridiculous to uh, eye rolling, and I'll, I'll enlighten you more on that uh, as time goes by. But uh, yeah, so hopefully you enjoyed the talk this evening uh, or this morning. I don't know. I'm still saying this evening because you know I, I guess um, that's a telltale that I haven't been to uh, sleep yet. Um, but uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed the talk. Um, in, either way. And um, yeah, hopefully you're drinking a la latte or whatever the hell you're drinking or some shit. I don't know. Who cares? What What is wrong with me? Um, but yeah, check it out. So uh, listen, also on Twitter, I finally wrapped my Twitter account up. Uh, I just, I completely stopped posting on Twitter. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, most of you have heard my disdain for posting on social media in the past. Uh, and that, that continues. Uh, but uh, I'm, I still check my messages and I'll, I'll still read uh, and, and go through someone's timeline and see what uh, interesting things they have to say, if at all, if it is. Uh, and other than that, uh, it's just, uh, you know, it's we had a, a very snowy Halloween. Looking forward to some warm weather. Uh, what else is there? Um, 
I don't know. <sighs> you know, I'm going to come back next week with the news, of course. There's a lot of news to catch up on. And, um, God, there's just so much more I wanted. Oh, yeah, I think you should. You should. <laughs> Crash is holding up a card, like check out website. Uh, be sure to visit our website at hackers.xxx. Uh, also, and check out the, uh, click on the um, podcast uh, link for any of our previous uh, shows as well. You could also download us on most of the uh, whatever things that you subscribe to. And uh, we are also on the internet archives as well. Uh, so there's plenty of ways to download the show and check us out. And we hope that you do. And I certainly appreciate that you do as well. And, uh, with that said, uh, yet another week, right? So let's get it. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's buck up and, uh, let's get through it all together. Uh, with that said, I want to say, uh, Hey to all my special friends and family. And, uh, I will be seeing a lot of you guys real soon. I love you and miss you all. Uh, and also, uh, thank you again for listening and tuning into the show and check out the website hackers.xxx. And, uh, if you have anything to say, just send us, send us an email. If that's what you want to do, uh, please do take care of yourself. And until next week, I don't know. What should I say? I'll see you next week. All right. See you next week then. Bye. Favorite son Do you care just what he's done?